Blog Talk Radio. This is Cale Brown. Now, I didn't play a doctor on TV, but I will prescribe Brandon's Buzz for absolutely anybody who wants to know what's really going on. Hey, guys, this is Brett Claywell from One Life to Live, and you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. This is Taylor Dane, and you are listening to the one and only Brandon Buzz. Hi, this is Lynn Herring on Brandon's Buzz. It's the great entertainment talk show on now. Brandon, I love you. Thanks for having me. This is Linda Dano. I'm on Brandon's Buzz, and I have to tell you, what a fun hour I just had. Ah. This is a great kid with a wonderful heart and soul. You listen every day. I know I will. Hey, hey, this is Nia Peoples, and you are checking out Brandon's Buzz right now. Hi, everyone. This is Eric Martin from the band Mr. Big. I'm live and kicking on Brandon's Buzz. Hi, this is Dave Romero, and you're going to love buzzing with Brandon's Buzz. Hey guys, welcome back to Brandon's Buzz. I am Brandon. Tuesday, February 28th, 2017. It's the last day of February, y'all. 10 p.m. in the east, 7 p.m. right here in foggy San Francisco. And I could not be more excited to be back here with you and back here with one of my favorite people on the whole of this earth. You know, I've been busy, as I often want to do around here, uh, writing a lofty and eloquent introduction extolling the myriad virtues of my guest tonight. And the farther I got with it, the more it turned into a meandering, uh, self-indulgent mess that had little to do with the guest herself and more to do with me and this show and why I've loved soaps for most of 40 years. And after three full pages of that nonsense, I've decided to just scrap all of it and start plumb the hell over. So here's the deal. I love soaps. And I love writers, so it figures then that some of my absolute favorite people to talk to on this whole planet are soap writers, particularly the grizzled old school, been through it and back and through it again soap writers, who created and crafted the stories that I lived for when I was but a wee lad. You know, over the course of more than 100 episodes of this very program, I've had the opportunity to bend the ear of a few such writers, not nearly as many as I would like, mind you, though I'm continually working on that. Uh, And I can tell you that there are few people I get more excited to trade emails with or to talk to than the glorious, gregariously brilliant Pam Long, whose bold, bracing, heartfield work made Guiding Light one of the soap sensations of the 1980s and whose latter work on Santa Barbara and One Life to Live had as many devotees as detractors. You know, Pam has left her soap days long behind her, much to current-day soap's detriment, if you ask me, uh, and has, up until very recently, been laying rather low in the entertainment world as a whole. But a couple years ago, fate tossed Pam into country icon Dolly Parton's orbit. Dolly had just signed a deal with the NBC television network to create a series of scripted specials about her life based on a handful of her classic songs, and Dolly and her team naturally needed someone to pen said scripts. Enter Miss Pamela K. Long, former Miss Alabama and eternal daughter of the American South, who forged an instant connection with Dolly and immediately set about adapting Dolly's indelible smash hit, Coat of Many Colors, from a three-minute song into a two-hour television movie. Let me tell you something, honey. Pam, as they say in the South, put her foot in said adaptation. 
NBC put Code of Many Colors on the air during the holiday season in late 2015 and ended up, to their amazement, with their highest-rated and most-watched special of its type in a decade. And because nothing succeeds like success in network television, NBC immediately fast-tracked a sequel to Coat, which Pam also wrote, to have ready for air for the 2016 holiday rush. And that film, entitled Christmas of Many Colors, Circle of Love, debuted to equally huge viewership, and all of a sudden, seemingly out of nowhere, Pam Long, who not so long ago thought that her writing days were irretrievably gone from her grasp, is back in the game. As I've joked to her privately, single-handedly trying to resurrect the network TV movie, ground that broadcast networks had long ago ceded to cable, and a major behind-the-scenes player at no less an organization than NB freaking C, people. I tried hard to get Pam pinned down in 2015 to come here and talk about Coat here on The Buzz, and we just couldn't get our respective schedules to line up and make that happen. And her plate was completely full in the run-up to the debut of the sequel film as well. But the stars finally managed to line up for Pam and myself on the exact day that the second film was released on DVD just prior to Christmas of last year. As a matter of fact, you will hear me in the interview that I'm about to play for you wishing Pam a happy holiday season, so don't be thrown by that. We recorded this in late December of last year during what was a tricky best of times slash worst of times situation for her. Professionally, she was back on top of her game, older and much wiser, writing the stunning success of two consecutive highly rated films for television. But personally, things were not nearly as rosy. Pam's mother had passed away after an extended illness around Thanksgiving of last year, just prior to the debut of the second Dolly film. You know, the loss was a wrenching one, obviously, and uh, was made all the more difficult by the fact that she couldn't really fully and properly grieve until after all her movie-related duties were completed. She had promised me an interview at that time, and, you know, even though I insisted to her several times that I would completely understand it if she wasn't feeling up to it, she followed through on her promise to let me grill her about the films and to gab more about her sudsy past. Gun to my head, I couldn't tell you why she decided to go through and subject herself to me, of all things. Uh, and if I had to guess, I would bet that she just wanted to share a good belly laugh or two and you know, take her mind off of her grief for even for a few minutes. We gabbed for nearly two hours, though a goodly portion of that was devoted to completely off-the-record soap gossip, which was solely for my ears alone. And I'm here to tell you all, that was all I wanted for Christmas last year, my little chickadees. You know, I wasn't sure what to expect prior to getting Pam on the phone again. But once we connected, I was relieved to find that, by and large, she was exactly the Pam Long I remembered with such fondness from my previous interview with her seven years ago. Funny, frank, forthcoming, and ready to dish about the first time she met Dolly Parton, about how it felt to rediscover her creative voice, and about, once and for all, for all you guiding light nuts out there, what exactly she had against those damn bowers of Springfield. Tell me how you got hooked up with the fabulous Dolly Parton. Years ago, I actually met her and wrote a movie for her called Unlikely Angel, and it was a sequel, so it, 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 it didn't get made. But then two or three years ago, I got a call from Sam Haskell, who used to be my super agent at William Morris. But he was no longer with them, and he said, I'm calling writers together to meet with Dolly in Nashville. And I'm like, Really? I knew that he had like three or four other men who were big name Hollywood writers, and then me. And so I flew out there. And at, the, at that and time, she, was it clear what Dolly wanted to do, or or was was she just no, feeling out? No, it's just that she was of... interested. Yeah, she was interested in the first time for maybe telling some stories, and she had not done. 
television, at least successfully. You know, she'd had a variety show, I think, years before and didn't last for a long time. And she'd, so she'd had all these successes, but she wanted to tell some stories. And I think she actually really wanted to be on camera just like telling some of her stories. And the best way in her mind to do that was television because it's, yeah. you know, multiple hours as opposed to a feature film about her life. And it's more intimate. They've been after her. Well, and they've been after her to do that for years, and she's just not yeah. ready. She's not ready to do that. So I flew out to fabulous Nashville, and I didn't meet at her house. She's got a little condo. It's adorable, beautiful, uh, in downtown Nashville, and that's where we met. And she made lunch, and yep, she and, <laughs> um, and it was really good. And I'm like, oh I'm eating food that Dolly Parton made, and. She looks adorable. I mean, her little legs look like a teenager's, you know. And I'm like, I keep like looking at those legs. I'm like, how is that possible? But anyway. And were you and with we the other men talking. at that time, or were you just one on one with Dolly? Oh no, we only auditioned one at a time. Gotcha. So gotcha. I had read her book. I knew her story, and she was impressed that I knew so much about her. And then she heard that I did Christy, and she goes, Oh no, you know, y'all did that right. That was real. That was. Like, you know, hadn't been, made fun of her people in the mountain and all that sure. kind of stuff. And so, so she liked that I had written and produced that. Then she goes, well, you know, I mean, I really, I really, really like you, but I'm just going to have to pray on it. Well, I got to tell you, I have been in business for a long time. And that was the first <laughs> time that I have had a meeting where, that ended with somebody saying, I'm just going to have to pray on it. I said, well, yeah, me too. We actually had some things in common, like her granddaddy was a preacher in the mountains. My granddaddy was a preacher in the mountains, so we were both raised by preacher's daughters. Now, I didn't grow up in the poverty that she did. We didn't have a lot of money, but they were like living hand to mouth. So sure. we, she knew that I spoke her language, you know, and it was actually kind of the same mountains because those Appalachians in Tennessee come down into northern Alabama, and that's where my sure. people were from. So we had that in common. But she still could not make up her mind about exactly what she wanted to do. And then I kind of like let it sit. And then several months later, I get called in to meet with her in L.A. I go in, and she's like, would you just write me some scenes? Can you write me a scene? Because, like, I really think you're my writer, but I haven't seen it on paper. I said, well, yeah, I'll do that. I said, but that's just a trap, too. Because if I just tried to write scenes for you, it might be about some part of your life that you don't even like or you don't even want to know about or you don't want to. I said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to write a scene when you were little. So it will be with your brothers and sisters and parents in the mountains, and I'll write a scene with you and Porter Wagner, and I'll write a scene with you and Dean, who becomes her husband. I said, and I'll write you three scenes, and then you can decide. She says, that'd be great. Because I hadn't been in the business in a while. I'd taken a step back. I had a whole other life that I was living. So I came home and I started writing and I had fun doing the scenes, but I wrote the scenes that actually ended up in the very first movie. I wrote those scenes with the kids and when my husband read them, he just he got he got like tears in his eyes. He was like, "Pam, I have missed this voice. Yes. I have missed your writing." And he had been talking to me for a long time about You've got to write again. You've got to write again. And I was actually helping mentor. I helped people get books published and how to do that. You know, I was helping other writers, but I wasn't writing. And he had really, he had really missed that. 
anyway, I wrote those scenes, and I thought, I just wish that I could read them out loud to her because there was a rhythm and a cadence, and the, you know what I mean? Like she wasn't yes. – and I told her, I'll write these, but you have to read them in front of me. I'm not just going to send something over you know, the internet, and then you're going to read you – know. and she goes, I will, I will. I said, okay, you meet me in a week back here in this office, and I'll give you the scenes. And she did, and she showed up, and all the way I'm thinking, oh, God, I wish I could just read these. I wish I could read them to her. <laughs> and I walk in, and she goes, well, I've left my glasses at home, so you're just going to have oh to read God. them to me. <laughs> I know. And I said, oh, no. Okay. <laughs> and um, so I started with her little dolly, you know, in the mountains, and she was smiling, and then she was laughing, and then I made it into the scene where her little baby brother had died. And I, I knew that from the book. But she never talked about it. And I started reading the scene of that happening, and she just dropped her face into her hands and started weeping. I mean, it was like a real emotional moment. And I finished it up, and she's just like, she says, it's just like you're a mind reader. It's just like you're inside my head. She said, well, you're definitely my writer. And I said, I know that you are nervous. Family is everything to her. She doesn't ever want anybody's feelings to get hurt. She worries about telling these stories that everybody wants to hear because she doesn't want anybody's feelings to ever get hurt. You know what I mean? And I said, this is what you need to do. This is your show, Dolly. Use these kids because they're really you guys, but you're just kids. But I think people would really be interested in how Dolly Parton became Dolly Parton and who was Dolly Parton before she was Dolly Parton. And I said, and and you could do two-hour specials with this. It could be movies. It could be – anyway, so they ended up making a deal. Gosh, it was probably a year later with NBC, but they said that Code of Many Colors was the first one that they wanted to do. And um, they called me in. Because everybody and now, knows look, that song, and everybody knows – yeah. Everybody knows the song, and I had already put it together for her that I truly believe that her mother made that coat for her because she was so grieving over that baby. And she's like, well, I don't want to tell a story about that baby. And I'm like, Dolly. (laughs) And I have to say, it was Sam Haskell who convinced her because he's like, look, I've never seen a movie that didn't start out with a great – a great movie starts out with a great tragedy. Like, look at Bambi and look at – you know, so he starts naming these movies. So – and I said, and honestly – this is really revealing your mother's heart. There's an opportunity to really reveal who your mom was. Because even she wasn't putting it together. I said, no, your baby, your little baby passed away in July, and by October, your mom had made that coat. So, yeah, you were grieving, and she was trying to make you special, make you feel better. You know, she's trying to heal the family and heal you because she took it so hard because that was her little baby. They each had a baby because there were so many of them. So... At that point, they said, yeah, let's go into the network to pitch. Now, Brandon, it's been a while since I pitched. Now, I used to make a living out of selling shows. You know, I I created shows. But it's been a while. So I'm walking into NBC, and the CEO is there, Bob Greenblatt, and Quinn Taylor is there, who's in charge of all the movies and stuff. And there was another woman there, and I didn't know who she was because, like, when you're you know, I'd taken a step back and I really wasn't paying attention in business. And Warner Brothers was there and then Dolly was there and Sam. And I walked in and there's, and I, you know, I had to go through a whole thing about what I was going to wear. You know, we have ranch and animals and all that kind of stuff. So I'd really kind of 
dressed up like a cowgirl because that's how I dress a lot of times. <laughs> and I walk in, and I'm with Dolly, right? And I walk in, and Dolly has on a Chanel suit. So she looks like totally uptown Fifth yeah. Avenue, and I look like I'm doing a Dolly Parton impersonation. And I'm like, and they're already in there, and she gets up to hug me, and I, you know, reach down because she's tiny and knock over her whole bottle of water on the beautiful executive conference table all over their equipment oh my god and everything and i see the ceo like picking up yeah picking up his computer so that it won't die and that's how that's how it started out i walk in and i do practically a prep ball on top of the table and oh then god. i'm going i'm going to pitch it and it probably discombobulated sam because he starts to introduce the thing and he's taking all the stuff that I'm going to be saying. And I'm like, well, then what am I going to say? And I kind of had written down the, the pitch and everything, and I started, and I thought, sure. you know what? And I could see Dolly looking at me, and she just kind of puts her hand on my leg and just gives me all the support in the world. And I just put all the notes aside, and I just start telling the story of Dolly Parton. And then I noticed that the woman who was there has started to cry. And, of course, Dolly cries. Cries every time I tell her story. She cries. <laughs> so there was Kleenex there. and, and I re- But the person who was crying, the woman who I didn't know who she was, so I thought I didn't know if she was one of the – she's the president of the network. That's Jen Salky. She's the president of NBC. <laughs> so anyway, got through all that, and at the end of it, Bob Greenblatt says, Dolly, you've, like, found your soulmate. This is, like, your soulmate. <laughs> And she goes, I know. And they, bought it, and they bought it in the room. Yeah, it was a great story. I mean, you know, starts out couldn't be worse. And then and they bought it. And I had a ridiculous amount of time to write the first draft, like four weeks, which is impossible. But because I come from daytime and I know how to work really hard, <laughs> got that done. Yes, but and, you said you hadn't uh, been writing in a while. So were you rusty, or or did you uh, was it an immediate? Nah, poured out of diving me. back in. Totally of... poured out of me. Totally poured out of me. Oh my and, god! Um, no, it was just one of those great, great things. It was 130 pages, which is embarrassing. And I said, now this is a, you know, there's a that's a writer's draft. <laughs> that means nobody sees it except my husband, <laughs> right? Yes. Nobody sees that because it's ridiculously unprofessionally long. Because they ultimately want it down to like 98 pages. So it's 30 pages long. And I'm like, no, I well, I can't pass that in. you got to give me at least a day so I can get it down. And <laughs> Sam's like, just me and Dolly. It'll just be me and Dolly looking at it. Just me and Dolly. It's the weekend. I'm like, yeah. okay. Don't ever listen to anybody <laughs> about anything. Especially and when he was I find an agent. out on Monday. Oh, yeah. And I find out on Monday that they've given that to Warner Brothers. And I'm like, you get that back from them. You tell them not to read it. I've already got it down. (laughs) I can be brutal in the edit. So I got it down, and they hardly had any note. NBC never had a note for me. They were great. And I love Quinn Taylor, and I love Bob Greenblatt. And it's a a miracle. And then we we shot it with incredible – time casting and I knew if we didn't find little Dolly we wouldn't have a movie but we found sure. her and Olivia Lynn and and then Jennifer Nettles was just a godsend. I mean I knew her as a country music star. 
Sure. But I didn't know if, if she could act, and she's just she's just a natural. And then Ricky Schroeder, who really reminds Dolly of her dad. They're just an incredible cast, and we put it up, and then it did those incredible numbers. And I mean, everybody on earth loves Dolly Parton, and they should. I've never even heard anybody talk bad about Dolly Parton. <laughs> That's like, who does that happen to? So we knew they loved Dolly Parton. We knew that we all loved the story. Sure. But what America really loved was the message. They loved that message, you know, of family and love and faith and overcoming tragedy and through it. And so I could tell from the stuff Steve was telling me from the Internet and then just from people like, you know, the guy that's doing some work on the house, gruff guy, you know, <laughs> he's like, we were really discouraged about stuff. And then we watched that. And it's like people were encouraged by it. And the numbers kept climbing higher and higher. And then they ran it again. It was like, yay. Because I was hoping they played every year and then they were playing it in the same year. So that was good. <laughs> you know, did you go into this with the notion? I mean, when you did Coat, did you. Uh, was the notion there that this would eventually be a series of films about Dolly's life, or did you just treat this as a, as a one off thing and, you know, not knowing what would happen? Well, I hoped. I hoped that there would be sequels. I was hoping that it would be an annual event. That's what I hoped. By doing the sequel, we didn't play the first one again, but you know, this one's actually set at Christmas, so they may play this one every year. I just the idea of having something that people look at every Christmas just is a dream. You know, I loved sure. writing Christmas when I was doing daytime. I love – I said I could have a cottage – I used to say this when I was in New York. I could have a cottage industry writing Christmas movies. I would love to just write Christmas stuff. And, um, you know, from Texas to Guiding Light on, I love writing families at Christmas and Christmas miracles. This little girl, Olivia Lind, I mean, holy mac, what a spitfire this girl is. I mean, uh, how did you guys find her? We saw hundreds of girls from all over the country. Concentrated mostly on New York and L.A., but, yeah, we had a lot of girls out of the South as well. And, I mean, I knew we didn't have a movie if we didn't find her. And there she was. She was a little young, but it didn't matter. You know, she was just perfect <laughs> because she has Dolly's spunk. She's got her spirit. She's full of beans. She has a capacity for joy, <laughs> and she never gives up, and she just – and, then and the they, accent, um, I mean, the accent is spot on. I know. Well, her mother, who's also an actress, Barbara did One Tree Hill, and people always recognize her. They just have a beautiful family. She's got these beautiful sisters. They're actresses, too. But um, her mother was from North Carolina, so she could actually really help her with that. Allie was born in North Carolina, but I don't know how much she remembers that. But anyway, there's a part of her that comes from the South. The enormous response to this. I mean, I know this is a stupid question, but but you must have been stunned by 13, 14 million viewers. I mean, I can't imagine the network was tracking, uh, you know, uh, that many viewers uh, in terms of what they were anticipating the tune-in factor for this to be. I mean, were they expecting a huge number, or were they were they being kind of conservative with what they were with what they were anticipating? Their expectations. Yeah. Well, I will say that it it was it exceeded their expectations. It set a record for them for the last seven years. Sure. In fact, this last one, 
the movie was in the top ten for the week for all television, not yeah. just beating its competition on the night. But it pushed them to the highest numbers, except for the Olympics or the Super Bowl. It pushed them to the highest numbers that they've had in 19 years. My God. So I know. And I said, well, you got to really look at the counter-programming here. <laughs> you know, there is an audience for this. Nothing. I mean, you know better than anybody that nothing succeeds like success in, in network television. So I assume that we can expect a third film in this series. And you know, you, you uh, in the second in in Christmas of Many Colors, you planted the seeds brilliantly in the second film, where you had Dolly's uncle t- talking seriously about taking her to Nashville and you know trying to make her a country star. And so y- y- you planted the seeds really brilliantly in terms of setting up. And wasn't he cute? Talk about this. some cute casting. <laughs> <laughs> Like yeah, you cute little guy from Australia, you. Um, but I assume but, uh, that we can expect more films in this series. Is that is that a fair assumption or? I think it's fair. I think it's possible. There's rumors about a series. I don't know about that, but I would think that there could be one more. I think that's possible. And you know the other brilliant thing about the construction of this is that you you're not really you won't really be hamstrung by the problem. The classic problem of the child star getting older and and kind of outgrowing the parameters of the world that you've created for her because uh, no, you know, you're actually about that. <laughs> you're actually rather helped by it because as Olivia gets older, Dolly gets older, and that presumably only broadens the palette of colors that you have to paint with in terms of That's you know right. working with stories about her life. You're absolutely right. I mean, I assume it you can do you, you can do Dolly meeting Porter, and you can do the whole her going to Nashville and her beginning to write songs, and you know you can explore all of that. I I would imagine. Oh well, yeah, that'd be years down the line. Yeah, sure, sure, absolutely. I would love to see a movie of Dolly's life, you know, along the line of Walk the Line or um, the Loretta Lynn story. Was those were great. Those were great films. Whether sure. you were even the fans of, and, of theirs yeah. or, or not, yeah, yeah. Coal miner's daughter, great. So she, I guess the question she, is: she, Are you interested in this becoming an annual series of films, or or have you kind of gotten this out of your system, or are you interested in, in participating in more films to the extent that you have in these first two? Well, I mean, I love Dolly Parton, and as she always says, "We make a good team, don't we?" And um, and we do. I love Dolly, and if, usually if Dolly asks you to do anything, you just nod and go, yeah. <laughs> you know, I I am working on other things. Can't talk about them right now, but, you know, believe me, I love Dolly Parton, just like everybody else in the world. But, you know, but I've gotten to live like inside your... her skin. I really understood some <laughs> things about her. Just being by myself with her and that little girl and thinking about that little girl in the middle of that family and on that mountain, I realized it's like she always knew. She always knew that she was going to reach the world. I'm sure. convinced of it. That's an amazing thing. When there's not one bit of evidence around you that would tell you that. I mean, that just has to come from God. So that's pretty powerful. You know, part of me thinks that as as enjoyable as these films were for us to watch, that it, they were in a large way therapeutic for Dolly to watch and and kind of experience all of this, you know, from the long view, I guess. Yes, it's like I told her to be able to tell her brothers and sisters, I'm actually not a mind reader, you know, but it feels that way. (laughs) But that I would always capture the spirit of the people. It may not always be exactly the facts of them, but it would be their spirit. So she's been happy with that. 
real happy with it. And, you know, it sounds like your life was in the right place at the right time for these projects. I mean, it, it seems like it all just kind of clicked into place for you. Yeah, it did. I wasn't looking for it, but there it was. And it was just so wonderful to be able to use that voice again. It is where I'm from. And um, so, yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of my family in there, too. A lot of my husband's family. He was raised by a preacher's daughter, too. So... <laughs> I know, for all those people that knew me in the 80s and 90s, that's hard to believe. But, um, uh, yeah, so it, it's, it's, it was like a family reunion, you know? It was like going home. I'm sure, as I'm sure everybody remembers, the last time you were here, we talked a lot about Guiding Light, obviously. And, you know, I've followed a number of message board threads and social media posts about that interview in, in the seven years since you were here. And, and uh, you know, I also posted on Facebook and Twitter – a few weeks ago just to see if anyone might have questions for you and I got about 50 emails and messages from folks out there and nice. in looking at the reaction to our first interview and in looking at the responses I got over the past few weeks about you know what people might want to talk about what people might want to know about the number one question people had for you by far it wasn't even close was what did Pam Long have against the Bauer family on Guiding Life <laughs> And, you know, I, I broached this with you the first time you were here, and I'm here to tell you that the answer that you gave was not satisfactory to a large number of my listeners. I got schooled all about Mike Bauer and Hillary Bauer and all these Bowers that had exited the canvas while you were there. And, you know, when we chatted the first time, I had a massive list of topics I wanted to cover with you beyond just that, and I wanted to give you a shot to clear this up for real and forever because – you know, this struck a chord out there in your fan base, lady, and I'm talking about a chord that is still getting strummed 35 years later. I mean, while you while right. you were writing Guiding well, Light. Well, honestly, honestly, if they're really still mad about the Bowers, that's not my <laughs> fan base. <laughs> that's Guiding Light's fan base. <laughs> um, those are core, core things. Well, I don't even know I mean, it, the first time. Did you or Gail or Jeff Ryder or P&G or CBS, did any of you make a concerted effort to sit down and say, let's get rid of some of these Bowers? Or was it just, I mean, what what was, I mean, I don't know. You know, the perception out there, I guess, is that you came in with the intention of phasing out the Bauer family in, in favor of the Lewises and the Spaldings, as opposed to... You know, I, I, actually, I didn't. I mean, it was three stories, and there was a Bauer, but he was with Philip, and he was with the young people. But I think what happened was is that I added those other families, and they just really took off. They just they took off. And it was just a combination of things, you know, because I, I told a big Reardon story when I came on, and that was a family that had been on there for a long time. That was the Annabelle sure. story. And having that mystery and then this big love story with these new families, and then there was even a fantasy story with another Bauer. All I know is six months later, <laughs> there was a week where it beat General Hospital when they yeah, used to you were a number one. Yeah. yeah, that's right. We were number one. So it was working, and I guess that I got away with it. And then Charita got ill, and I remember being at the hospital with her and everything. And I, there's honestly, there's no way that I wouldn't have been able to write her, but she was sick. And Dr. Bauer was around for a while, and I loved his son. But I mean, uh, you know, you had you had Rick, you had Ed, like Ed married Maureen, they had Michelle. Johnny Bauer was a major character. I mean, it's not like there were no Bowers on well, the Well, Johnny canvas. Bauer, I created, so yeah. 
And it's not Maybe like you took a pillow and smothered Sharita. I mean, you know, it's 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 a little bit ridiculous, no. I think, to tell you the truth. And but I'm here to tell you, it's still a well, thing. Well, Johnny a Bauer, big I thing. created, and Rick, I created, and well, I mean, you know, as a as a kind of a, as a teenager, uh, sure. dream up. I totally created out of whole cloth, Johnny. So yeah, there are always there are always Bowers there. The light. The I'm light just telling you, it's it's still a big thing with your fans and detractors alike out there. It's still a big thing. <laughs> yeah. I'm here to tell well, you, it wasn't even close. It was the number one question. Well, then let me just say this. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry if that hurt anybody's, if that hurt anybody's feelings. It, it didn't seem to get to me. Nobody came to me and said, hey, you better do this, you know, before this, because, you know, this success is really kind of doing them in. So <laughs> nobody did that. But, you know, it's what all writers do. I mean, they, they figure out what characters the audience is gravitating toward, and they write more of those, and that's just how it works. Yeah, I mean, I I knew it was a warship show. I knew it had been on the air longer than anything on, on the airwaves because it started off in radio, and it was in trouble. But I just was telling – I you know what? I was just telling stories. I don't <laughs> even know if I – how much I thought about it. But I do know that Jeff Ryder, there was no way that Jeff Ryder was going to have me not pay attention to Bowers. I mean, he, he knew the history. He was always like the keeper of the flame, you know. He always knew the history of everything. Because sure. I was not, you know, I was not a – I remember my mom ironing and watching her story, but I just – I was not a soap watcher. That's not what we did when I was in college. Sure. We won't even get into any of that. But anyway, um, <laughs> so – you know, part of me wonders if you coming in from that. coming in from Texas, which did not have decades of history that you had to to be mindful of. I wonder if that played against you when you came into Guiding Light, which did have decades of history to be mindful of. But but yeah, you were used I think, to I think it was kind of ignorance. being able to invent. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was. I didn't come in with any big. You know, you got to do this or you got to do that. It was like come up with a big overview come up with a big long term and you know and I wrote like novels I mean I wrote my my long terms were like 250 pages long they were novelettes (laughs) and we used to draw from those you know week after week I mean monologues that I wrote ended up on the air and won Kim Zimmer and Emmy I was writing so far ahead and at that point it was just kind of pouring out of me I was young I was the youngest head writer as far as I know in daytime history (laughs) and I didn't I just didn't know you know I just had to go on gut instinct it wasn't like I was going on experience it wasn't like I was going on having been a fan or anything I didn't know but I did have Bowers and Story they may not have been happy that it wasn't you know maybe they didn't used to share Story before all I know is they were in trouble and the ratings started going up so I don't know and you know part of me wondered did I kill somebody Did I kill off somebody? You know, I honestly don't know. I, I mean, uh, that that was a little bit before my time, but but uh, you know, uh, part of me wonders if if it was just if it if most of that wasn't just the unfortunate circumstance that Sharita got ill and you lost her and you sort yeah. of had to realign the canvas to uh, make up for that fact. Because she was the heartbeat of that family. Sure. She was. And the you know the quite a, the uh, quite a woman. the keystone of the show in many ways. For sure. And then she was just – she was gone. So, yeah, it was the Reardons and the Spaldings coming up and the Lewises. That's true. I can't, I can't believe it didn't occur to me to ask you this last time because we were talking about Beverly McKenzie. 
did you create Alexandra Spalding for Beverly McKenzie, or was it just a coincidence that that Beverly was available mm. and that's that's who came in? Did no, you create that for role her. for her? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, she's just a wonderful, just a wonderful actress. And I'd worked with her on Texas. It was easy. It was yeah, and she was a great character, and I loved her and Alan together, the brother and sister. They were like, eh. um, yeah. So it was always for her. It was always for Beverly McKenzie. I couldn't imagine anybody else playing her. You know, Beverly was situated in a way that she she didn't have to work. She did it because she loved it, and if she didn't love sure. it, she didn't have to. But she was, you know, I mean, she's the reason that I was even in the business because. <laughs> That's who I was auditioning with, you know, yes. the first time. You told that story time. last time and you were here. She, yeah, yeah, she really helped me, and she was always there for me. And um, I was really, really fortunate to have been able to work with a pro like her. You know, the other thing that I wanted to great. give you a chance to, to uh, expand on for a bit is when you were here last time, we were discussing Kim Zimmer's infamous departure from Guiding Light in 1990 with Reva in that red Buick driving off the – driving off the uh, washed-out bridge in Key West. You know, I would have sworn that you wrote that storyline, and I even pulled out my old VHS tapes from that time oh, to look I at the credits. Oh, I would kill Reva. To look at the credits, and you are credited as the head writer on all of those episodes. In fact, you are credited as the head writer of Guiding Light all the way up through December of 1990. And, you know, you stunned me when you told us that you did not write that storyline, and I just want to clarify for the record, I mean, were you having an enormous brain fart that night, or did you really I don't know. not write that story? I don't remember. I don't remember. <laughs> I don't remember. I, I remember closing down a restaurant once in New York, fighting with her about story, <laughs> and her telling me to kill her, and I'm like, no, I won't. I'm going to put you in a coma, but I'm not going to kill you. Um... I don't know, unless. And I if you didn't the write the it, show. do you know why they credited you as the head writer? I mean, was Nancy Curley or someone else well, because writing the show using your story time. plan? Yeah, it would mean that they were still in some of the stories, you know, enacting a long term that I had written, even though I had left the show. They would still, for a period of time, have to give me the credit for creating story. Sure. That's the only thing I can think of. But uh, <laughs> I, I don't, I don't remember having her. And I, I wouldn't have killed her. I mean, I'm, of course she would be coming back. I remember writing off for a period of time Josh and him leaving. Of course, he came back too. Pam, I'm stunned by this because I would have sworn that you wrote that storyline. And you're credited with writing the storyline. Maybe I blocked it out. I just can't. I, can't I am take stunned having, by this. I'm, st- I'm still stunned by this. Having killed Reva. Also, I don't. I don't feel like I have any like affinity for Key West. You know what I mean? Like that isn't <laughs> Barbados. Absolutely, I'm a Barbados person. Um, I just I'm like Key West. Key West is just not my part of the country. I, I just don't know. I don't know. Spoke quite lovingly about working with producer Gail Covey on both Texas and later on Gunning Light the last time you were here, and you know we lost her recently. Uh, did you guys stay friends after you parted professionally, or, or did you kind of lose contact with her? We did lose contact, but I was always able to keep up with her through friends because my friend John Weitzel, he always remained friends with her. Sure. But yeah, I wouldn't have gotten a job. I wouldn't have ever probably – I probably would have never been a writer without Gail. She's who encouraged me. 
you know, I love the story you told here the last time you were here about kind of just always kind of being up in her office and bugging her about what was going to happen and and she yeah, encouraged you to, to pick up a pen and write it. So that's exactly right. And then took a chance on making me the head writer. And it's one reason why I was always willing to take a, a shot with people that didn't have experience because of yeah. my own experience. What if somebody hadn't been willing to take a shot with me? I remember at one point, I think we're on Guiding Light then, every single writer that I had on staff at that point had not ever done it before. And then they all became, you know, the head writers of the future. <laughs> so I'm always, you know, always I know. interested in encouraging people to write and sure take a chance. That's how new blood gets in, and that's that's part of the problem with today's soap landscape is that it's just all the old recycled writers just coming back and – Switching places and trading chairs and all that fun stuff. It's there's not really any right. new blood and coming recycling, in anymore. And yeah. recycling stories. I think that yeah. was the thing that was because I didn't know anything. I kept because I didn't know the rules. I kept breaking them, and that was good. And that was that was because of Gail. That was she loved story, and when she found somebody who could spin story, then she would move heaven and earth to make that happen. Because I figured I'd just go back to acting. You know, she wasn't going to have any of that. <laughs> lucky for you. So, yeah, lucky for me. She's absolutely right. I heard the truth. I know the truth when I hear it. Yeah, you got a funny accent, and you're not going to be cute forever. You need to just keep writing. <laughs> and boy, was she right. <laughs> she was right. You know, talking about legends that we've lost, I know that you, you talked about him the last time you were here, but since that time we've lost Paul Roush, who was you know, a giant in the industry, and his loss is a giant loss to the world of television, regardless of the day part. You know, I've, been, I've been pinning everyone who has a Paul Roush story down, and I, I'd love to hear a great one from you if you have one at the ready. Oh, for heaven's sakes. I, my husband would probably kill me for telling the story, but I remember coming in, and you know – Paul had something of a reputation. It was never really my experience with him, you know, but I can remember sitting in front of his desk, and I had just started writing. We'd gotten past the – because, you know, he loved to have beautiful dinners, and, I mean, he could cooking. You know, he was like a chef, too, but he'd take you to these wonderful restaurants, and he would woo you. I mean, it was great. He was such a pro, but like a throwback into old Hollywood or something, you know. Sure. And um, But now here we are. Now we're at the studio. I've been hired, and I'm in front of his desk for one of the first story meetings. It's just the two of us. And he started yelling about something. And I remember just yelling right back at him. Because, look, <laughs> I worked with Jeff Ryder. And when he was an executive, he threw a shoe across the room at me during a story meeting. And you know what? I get very passionate about story. I don't mind other people being passionate either if it's not personal. You know, if it's not personal and we can just fight like cats and dogs and then sure. one of us is going to win and, and the other one embraces it and then we move on, I'm happy. I'm fine. But anyway, he started yelling, and I just yelled right back at him. And uh, he jumped up from behind the desk and came over to me and just gave me a big hug and a big kiss right on the mouth and started laughing, and that was that. He never, ever raised his voice or anything again. It's like, we just set the boundaries, you know? Like, yeah, I'm not – yeah, if I yell at her, she's just going to yell back and get in my face. And um, 
he re- he respected that, and that was into that. And we always had a great relationship that was based on mutual respect. Was he the one yeah. that reached out to you, or was it NBC that brought you into Santa Barbara? I think it was Paul. It could have been I, – I don't know. I'm sure it was Paul. Because yeah. Paul and I met once even in New York City, and somehow nothing ever happened there. Yeah. I remember meeting with him once. Um, can't tell you about what, but I'm sure it came from Paul. You know, he paid attention, and he needed <laughs> sure. a writer, and he, he knew I sure. could write. You know, as a storyteller. But, now, but that's where it can really work. Now, he was a non-writing producer, almost well, everybody in daytime is. But he, he very strong producer. And I love that. I love a strong producer because you want somebody who can actually get your stuff on the air, you know? Exactly. <laughs> and make it look good. <laughs> but um, we got along great. We always got along great. You know, I yeah, I, miss him. I strongly suspect that there are things about your work on Santa Barbara that you would love to take a second pass at if you had the chance. Is that fair? Probably. Yeah. I remember putting Nancy uh, in a coma. <laughs> yeah. Never ever actually did that to anybody, but yeah. Hmm. <laughs> Look, I had one request. I said, I'll do Santa Barbara because I didn't move 3,000 miles to do daytime again. I thought I was going to be moving into nighttime. And I said, the only thing I want to know is that A. Martinez is, is – you've got him under contract and he's going to be there. Yep. And I said, oh, yeah. Huh. That's the first thing that happened. <laughs> he was gone. <laughs> I'm like, What? <laughs> Because that was kind of like the heartbeat of, you know, that's the heartthrob of the show. You know, I, I remember him a being years disappointed ago about that. I interviewed him a couple of years ago, and he, you know, I, I kind of mentioned that to him, and, you know, I didn't want to, I didn't want to accuse him of killing Santa Barbara because, of course, he really didn't. I mean, that the ticket for that show was really kind of stamped before you got there and before he left, but, but uh, it's one of those things where he really was the the uh, the pulsing heart of that show, and it just. Yeah, he you know, was. Marcy was gone, and and Louis Sorrell was. I mean, you, you know, so so many of the other stalwarts of that show were gone, and he was really the only one that was kind of left. And 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 when he left, there was just a hole in that show that couldn't be filled. Oh, that's right. You got to have that foundation. You know, you just have yeah. to have it. And I just really wanted to write for him. I thought he was a really romantic character. You know, he was such a man, and I just wanted to write him. You know, the the, uh, the last time you were here, I I, uh, I had so many one life to live questions because, as I told you privately, that was my show for a quarter of a century, and uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we were you know we were talking privately before that show started, and because you can do that when you get a podcast with your name on it, you can do stuff like you know chat with Pam Long privately before grilling them live on the air. And, uh, you know, (laughs) you told me beforehand, before that show started, that the only thing you remembered about your One Life stint was working with Michael Zaslow again. And like a fool, I failed to get back to that when we were actually talking on the air about that show. And and I've basically been beating myself up for seven full years about that because I really wanted to hear that whole story. Well, you know, we had an opportunity to hire him. And, of course, I remembered him from Guiding Light. I can't say that he was like one of these actors that I was like really close to. And as a matter of fact, I really wasn't close to 
very many actors. I mean, people always thought Kim Zimmer and I were best friends, and we only saw each other maybe once a year, you know, and we didn't talk on the phone every day or any of that. We really communicated through the scripts, but I wasn't really that close to him. But then he became ill, and it's just such a horrible disease. And it was Jill. It was Jill Fern Phelps who said, is there something that we can – I'm like, absolutely, yes. I can write something for him. I just needed to know what he could really do. do. And then getting to speak with him again, it wasn't easy for him to communicate even at that time. But being able to say, Michael, I just want to know if you are willing, because I have written this character and he needs to be in a wheelchair. Is that a problem for you? Will you have a problem being shown sitting in this wheelchair because that's what I need for the character? And him just getting very emotional you know, and saying, no, he would be willing to do that. And I don't know, it was a very precious time. And even till the end, he was just the consummate professional and gave it everything that he had. Sure. That is the thing that I remember, and it's the thing that I'm most proud of. And it's certainly the best thing that Jill and I did together was to have that opportunity for Michael to play a role again. And for the audience to get to see him again. And I thought it really worked. I thought it really worked. And I was – it's the thing I'm most proud of in terms of my time on that show. You know, he wanted to work again so badly, and, you know, they treated him so horribly. Procter & Gamble did, you know, the way the the whole thing ended at Guiding Light with his illness. And, you know, he – I don't know if you know about the history of it, but he actually wanted to return to One Life the year before you came in, and and somebody stepped in to quash the deal. I don't know if it was Procter and Gamble or if, if it was. It's not really clear who quashed the deal, but somebody stepped in and and ended it at the last minute. So it was great that that uh, you know you and Jill and ABC were able to step up the year after that and and really kind of make it happen the second time. Absolutely, and I know how much it meant to his wife and that we were treating him as a professional and using him to the utmost of his ability and taking what was the thing that had kept him from working and, you know, making it a part of the story. One Life got an incredible outpouring of press for that entire storyline. I mean, I remember Michael doing uh, Larry King Live, and I think 2020 came and did a big piece about you guys, and and uh, I would imagine that that must have thrilled both the, both you and ABC, and I feel like that that combined with the thrilling murder mystery that you wrote when you first came in really kind of gave you a little bit of cover to rearrange and realign that show's canvas without having the network breathing down your neck. Yeah, I never – yeah, I didn't feel the network breathing down my, my neck. They seemed very um, supportive at the time. Um but you'd know more about that than me, Brandon. I should have had you working with me on that show. That's what I should have had. If I had, uh, had you working with me on that show, it probably would have been a whole different story. Uh, you know, yeah. speaking of soap legends that we've lost recently, uh, you know, tell me about Lady Agnes. Did you ever cross paths with Agnes Nixon? No, I didn't, except for the fact that the people from Procter & Gamble had started out with her. So I always heard stories about sure. her. Sure. You know, I always heard Agnes stories, but no, I never really got to work with her or, or anything like that. 
No, the only kind of legend person that I ever knew was Doug Marlin. I did know him and was at his house for dinner and that kind of thing. And then, you know, he'd be like there in his, you know, velvet smoking jacket, but going out on the back porch (laughs) and shooting things out of trees and stuff for eating his garden. I mean, he was like, you you just never knew what was going to happen with Doug. You know, it's so funny. It's so funny you mentioned him. Got a rifle. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I interviewed your old buddy, Tom Racina a few years back and, and, uh, he talked about. Yeah. I guess he worked. He worked with Doug. Uh, I'm not sure what show he worked with Doug on, to tell you the truth. But anyway, he talked about being at Doug's house and uh, excusing himself to use the restroom and uh, lifting up the the toilet seat lid, I guess. And there was a picture of Gloria Monty taped <laughs> to the porcelain bowl. <laughs> So that when the men would use the restroom, they would piss yeah. on Gloria Monty's face. Oh, you know, <laughs> you know, yeah. You gotta let those things go, Doug. You gotta let them go. You know. Oh my God, that's one of the greatest stories I've ever heard. <laughs> no, he was. No, he was one of a kind. <laughs> you know, Sally Sussman and Kay Alden have just returned to soaps after an extended time away from them, and you know, I have to tell you the truth, I am still. Holding out hope that somehow, some way, someone is going to wise up and give you a call and make you an offer that you cannot refuse. Oh, man. I don't know what that would be. <laughs> I don't know what that would be. But they're, they're always fun. And the thing that's cool about you talking about that little dolly, Allie Lynn, she's been on, is it, isn't it the YNR? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, she's grown up there when we were at the premiere at Dollywood. They were saying that they had been at YNR, and they were like, there was a lot of people that wanted us to tell you hello, you know, because they they still, you know, they know you. Yep. I'm like, yep. yeah, you, yeah, yep. that's right. You bet. You know, from the way you described it to me, to us, the first time you were on this program, it sounded as though you went to New York City all those years ago just flying by the seat of your pants, not a plan in the whole world. And, you know, <laughs> I wonder, on balance, do you have any regrets about the way things worked out in your career? Not so far, <laughs> but there's. Um, I'm looking forward to the. I'm looking forward to the future. I think I'm in a new season, and I think that all of the things that I've, all of the things that you could even conceive of as regrets, are fields to mine of things that I've learned. Hopefully, through those experiences, you gain some kind of wisdom. And that too goes into your into your writing. So sure. I know that I'm I'm enjoying it more than ever. And I've I guess the thing that I've learned the most is it's better to write a soap opera than to live one. <laughs> 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 Took you a second, didn't it? <laughs> Amen to that. <laughs> yeah. You know, but I, I, Steve and I just celebrated our 26th wedding anniversary. Well, it wasn't that much of a celebration, but we did, you know, acknowledge that we've been married for 26 years. They were just too busy to even do anything uh, (laughs) together. But, um, you know, I've got. But in Hollywood, that's like three lifetimes. So, yeah. That's three lifetimes. And in dog years, (laughs) let's not even go there. We're ancient. Yeah. you know, and we've got a, a beautiful family and good friends. What more can you ask for? Nothing in the world. In this world. That's right. That's right. Well, you know, Brandon, I love you for never forgetting about me. 
for always getting such joy out of whatever little words I was able to sprinkle in your path along the way. And you are a uh, a loyal, you're a loyal friend. And, I tell you um, what, you know, my... This genre, and I appreciate it. My adoration for you is, is uh, you know, you truly have no idea how grateful I am to you for your generosity and your kindness that you have shown me over the year. I mean, seven years ago, you really helped take this ramshackle program of mine to the next level just by your mere presence. And, you know, I, I was and still am trying to reach a, a more mature, more perceptive soap fan with this unwieldy beast that I call Brandon's Buzz. And, you know, it now stands 103 episodes strong. And you, just by putting your imprimatur on this show, you really helped me find the exact audience that I was trying to reach way back then. And you had nothing at all to gain from that experience, and you did it anyway. And, and you know, I'll never, ever be able to repay that debt of gratitude, ever. I just want to tell you that I absolutely adore you and I'll be thinking of you this holiday season. I know it's not the easiest thing that you're dealing with, you know, with all the family drama that you have this season, but you know, I'm hoping that you'll have the merriest Christmas possible under the circumstances and and uh you know, I'm looking forward to what you have in store for us in 2017. Well, you know what? If we didn't have people like you, we wouldn't even be able to do what we do. So, there you go. Well, I'm going to take that as a compliment. And uh I hope you Yeah, absolutely. Well. And I and yeah. I and I just wish you a Merry Christmas. Oh, thank and you. And thank so you much. for always hanging in there with me. Right okay. back. Okay. You don't even know how much I adore that woman. And I can't thank the brilliant Pamela K. Long enough for coming in here one more time and allowing me to bend her ear when I'm sure it was among the things that she wanted to do least in that particular time in the whole of the world. Pam, a million thanks for your time and for the kindness you have shown me and shown this program over the years. Quickly, let me remind you that both of the Dolly Parton films, which we discussed during this conversation, 2015's Coat of Many Colors and 2016's Christmas of Many Colors, Circle of Love, are both available on DVD and Blu-ray. And I'm here to tell you, I just saw both of the DVDs at my local Target store as recently as last Saturday afternoon. So the films are easily accessible if you missed them the first time around. And they're also available for purchase on iTunes, on Ultraviolet, Flickster, basically the digital movie outlet of your choice, whichever one you prefer. You can find both of them right there. Uh, And as you heard, Pam played Koi when I asked about potential future films in this Dolly series, but I'll just bet you that there are more on the way. So stand by for news on that front. Uh, And once again, a million thanks to the fabulous Pamela K. Long for a fun conversation. At any rate, that's a wrap for Brandon's Buzz. If you're listening, you already know how to find the show clearly, but in case you don't, three places online, blogtalkradio.com slash Brandon's Buzz is home base for this show. Uh, From there, you can see what's on the show, who has been on the show, who is coming on the show. You can leave comments. You can send emails. It really is mission control for Brandon's Buzz. Again, it is blogtalkradio.com slash Brandon's Buzz. You can also find me at my blog, brandonsbuzz.com. There at the top of any page is a blue button marked radio. You click that button, that takes you to a full listing, a full radio archive, every episode of Brandon's Buzz, available at brandonsbuzz.com. This is episode number 104. This and all previous 103 episodes, all available in the radio archive at brandonsbuzz.com for your delight. Uh, I'm also on iTunes, guys. I'm on iTunes, right next to Pam Long's Movies. Just type Brandon's Buzz in the iTunes Music Store search box, scroll down to the podcast section, find my colorful Puzzle Piece logo, click on that, 
That takes you to every episode of this program, all 104 episodes of Brandon's Buzz, available as free podcasts uh, for downloading on the device of your choosing, all at iTunes.com. So check out iTunes, check out Twitter, check out Facebook. I'm all over the place. Google the words Brandon's Buzz, and something will pop up that points you in my direction. And as always, I appreciate you guys coming in my direction. I appreciate you guys finding and listening to me, and I hope you continue finding and listening. Hello, everybody out there. This is Eileen Kristen, and I have just been on Brandon's Buzz. This is a great show and a very sophisticated mind. So spread the word, Brandon's Buzz. This is Claire Massey from Tammy Show, and you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. Great guy, great show. Check hey it out. Hey, guys, this is Brett Claywell from One Life to Live, and you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. Hi, this is Lynn Herring on Brandon's Buzz. It's the great entertainment talk show on now. Brandon, I love you. Thanks for having me. So if you feel that you just can't take it, and your world isn't what it seems, don't forget that life can be what you make it. Baby, when you live on a street of dreams. Hey, this is Nia Peoples, and you're with Brandon Buzz, the place to be. Hi, everybody. This is Nicholas Walker. Merci à vous tous. Écoutez Brandon Buzz sur Blog Talk Radio. Bonsoir et à très bientôt. <laughs> <laughs> 